Before the RouterFlex podcast episode of the day, a quick word from our sponsor and friends at Marketing 360. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. Uh, I'm in Colorado, so north in between Denver and Fort Collins. Okay. Yeah. Um, yourself right now, where you at the outside Pittsburgh. of Pittsburgh? Yeah. Yep. Now, is that because you're, you were a West Virginia, West Virginia boy? How's that work? No, so I, I grew up in Pittsburgh, went oh. to WVU, and then I ended up living in Phoenix, California, and Fort Lauderdale. Okay. That's where I got the businesses started. But uh, yeah. yeah, back home to Pittsburgh. I mean, it's when you're from here, it's hard to stay away, you know? But I surprisingly, hear I, I hear, I hear like, there's a little bit of accent in there, like from when you were your years. Did you live in West Virginia for four years when you went no, to that's my Pits, that's my Pittsburghese that you're hearing. Okay. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's definitely not West Virginia. That's for sure. You hear a West Virginia accent, you know it. <laughs> well, I, I, was, I was listening. You sound a little bit, I don't know if anybody's ever told you this. You sound a little bit like Harry Connick Jr. Has anybody ever told you that? About 25 times. Okay. You, yep, you I've had, had that. I, I get that I look like Bon Jovi. Uh, which is weird to me because I don't think so. But girls, I almost got backstage at a concert because people thought I was his brother. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I do get the Harry Connick Jr. thing surprisingly, which is interesting. So good uh, catch. Uh, awesome. Yeah. Well, shit, we're already rolling. So we'll just keep going here. Tell us, Russ, a little bit about, you know, the person early years, family, mom, dad, siblings, where you grew up. Just give us some early stuff before. We yeah. Get so I was the oldest son, uh, five kids. Uh, we had four boys and then a girl was the youngest. Okay. My father was an entrepreneur that started the, uh, it's basically the country's largest privately held security company at one point. Um, they were the sixth largest overall at one point behind ADT and the big guys. Wow. I got to see that growing up. You know, I mean, the, you know, I remember every day leaving, my dad would leave in the morning and I'd watch him drive away and, you know, seven, uh, probably 12 hours later, 13 hours later, he would get back. And, you know, he wasn't, he was in my life, but that, I mean, work, he cut everything off for work, right? And, and, and I, I got to see that. And early, I, you know, work was something that you just have to do. Mm. Um, ends up, what happened was, is uh, there's a couple things that kind of created who I am. My grandfather was, he was a magician. So okay. I was, as the oldest grandchild, I was able to see how a room was set up, right? So, and I talk about this in my book, which we'll probably get into later. But, yes, uh, yes. you know, when, when, when you're a kid and, and a magician says to you, hey, listen, I'm going to put you in this box. I'm going to cut you in half. You're really not going to be cut in half. But the crowd's going to think that, um, you know, you don't really kind of goes over your head until you hear the crowd go. <gasps> and you realize that <laughs> they did something that they created this illusion. Right. Um, so, so seeing that early and, and then seeing how my dad worked and, and being part of my dad's magic trick, basically, when he would work the home shows and do things like that, he would bring me there. So at five, six and seven years old, much like Ron Popeil, you know, the set it and forget it guy um, that did the rotisserie thing, he, he got to be part of his dad's thing in, in the early days. One of the things that really <clears throat> affected me was Billy Mays, if you remember Billy Mays, the OxyClean guy. Hey, I'm Billy right. Mays. Right, right. Billy right, Mays right. was another guy from McKee's Rocks, PA, which is where my father and my family was from. Okay. And Billy every year had the uh, the booth across from us at the home show. And this is way before he was famous. This is just, he was a guy buying things from China and selling them, you know, for oh. 10 times what he paid for them, right? I see. So this year, uh, specifically, um, Billy was selling mops that were called a washomatic. 
And I was trying to figure out what, what was he doing to these people that every single person was buying two of these mops. Whereas my dad had to like, you know, talk to 1400 people before someone bought a security system. And I'm watching it and here a couple walked past me um, and the wife had two in her hand and the husband had two in his hand. And the wife looked at the husband and said, you know, it really stinks that you can only buy two of these. And it hit me that he was moving the cards around so that they picked the card he wanted, right? Because I had that much exposure to magic and things like that. So I walked up to Billy and I said, hey, Billy, I'd love to know what 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 you know, but eventually do it better, right? Because I was young and I figured that was the best thing to say. And he said like, all right, smart ass kid. He said, come sit next to me when I do my next pitch. You're gonna see one by one how I pick off each person in the audience. I'm gonna start with the wives. I'm gonna hit the husbands. The kids are gonna wanna do all the, you know, play with the mop. He said, you'll see it. And then I'm gonna hit him with an offer they can't refuse. And again, so you that just walked up of, to him. So you you just you were just a stranger. You just walked up to him and said, "Hey, man, show me how." Kind of strange, but because we were all from McKees Rocks, my father knew him. Ironically, his okay. mother leased her uh, property to my grandfather to put his insurance company in when he wasn't doing <laughs> magic. So, okay, we all knew of each other, right? And I was okay. this little little punk kid, I guess. And he, right. so here's what happened: is I, I got up on stage and I got to see him do this. And within ten minutes of him doing his this orchestra of awesome you truly had everyone stepping over each other to buy two of these mops. And, and it, it really made me think as a kid, you know, what's he doing? So here I ended up going into, um, I did sales early. I started telemarketing at 15. My, my mom used to drive me to, uh, to, to work as a telemarketer before I could even get a car. I mean, that's how early I wanted to get into business. And um, how come here, you didn't work for your dad? Why didn't you just work for your dad? I did for 12 years. And then I oh. realized that I couldn't own it. I couldn't run it. He was always going to be that guy. And, this, oh. and we, we butt heads a lot, you know? I mean, I, I, I love my dad. He's, he, thank God I had him and he drove me to be who I was. But at that time in my life, it was, you know, yeah. I was kind of a know-it-all kid. And, and I, I came, my dad wasn't a kid that went to college or school. So, you know, here I went to psych school. I worked with rats in a Skinner box and I understood what he was doing to people where he was calling it door in the face or, you know, foot in the door technique. And it's like, well, okay, dad, but there's a reason that works. And here's the psychology behind it. <laughs> oh, you think you're so smart. You know, so we had, we had one of those relationships. Like, well, why'd you make me go to college then? We always had that thing. Um, but uh, basically it, because I ended up going to school and, and, and working with rats in a Skinner box and learning psychology, I was able to kind of put together a framework that, that, that I took into his company and, and I ended up killing it as a salesperson. His company, I was the number one okay. rep nationally. And then at a certain point, like that's where I realized I couldn't go any further. I right? see. He wasn't, wasn't, he like wasn't going to let you, he wasn't going to let you be CEO. He wasn't going to let me be CEO. And I, I got into at that point when I was working, I think it was the 10th or 11th year I was there. I started working within a new technology division and I got to, experience technology and oh. it was from that point then i started looking for a way into software data technology somehow um, okay. and when i saw that opportunity i ended up moving to california started a tech company and then from there i was always an entrepreneur i never looked back what was um, the tech company give us the, the short version what was the tech company and did you bootstrap it what'd you do give us yeah the we bootstrapped version. i took out my 401k i i wow. uh, negotiated with my dad's company that i wouldn't take the i, I built a training program for that actually it's a funny story where the final point was it at my dad's company it was called guardian protection services was i built because i was the best sales rep i went i took all the psychology that i ever learned and i built a, 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 a really a framework for anyone to sell it like probably 80 90% close because I knew okay. exactly what the person across the table needed to hear over time and then you know what research proves that if you just do this you're going to get where you need to go yep. and uh, my father said do it do it and I was it was like the greatest moment of my life like this is my Super Bowl so it took me three months I learned Photoshop I went through all the research I tied everything back like it was going to be this is 
this is going to be the, the holy grail for your company, dad. And I laid it down. I remember the day I laid it down in front of him and he said, what's this? I said, this is the training manual that, that you yep. told me to build. And he goes, oh yeah, yeah. We decided not to do that. And I said, who's we? Because I never heard we when it came to the decision at his company. He was we. Right there, I knew something was up. And I said, what do you mean we? He says, I, I decided you're not going to do that because I don't want anyone to think I, I gave my kid a favor. And I remember looking at him and just oh, going wow. blank and thinking, how am I going to get at this? And I said, you know what? ADT will buy it off me. That was his biggest competitor. And I picked Ooh. it up and he, he said, good luck. Well, here, his parent company came back about three weeks later after they had got word of this. And they said, give him money to get out of I want him to, we need him to sign a no compete here. He never had one. We'll give him 30,000 bucks. Give us that manual back. There you Save go. There's your, there's your seed. There was your seed money for the tech company. Boom. Peace out. Right. <laughs> so I took that, my 401k. And what happened was we rented a, a house in Palm Springs. Okay. And I we, took a bunch. We, of, we, were you married? Well, no, me, we meaning, I always collectively say we. I should say I. Uh, it okay. ended up being me and my brother that were, oh. there was three original founders. Me, uh, I brought in my brother. I called him a co-founder. And then um, this other partner, Dan. And uh, basically what happened was, is I got about $80,000 total, I think, uh, and then started raising money from there. But basically what we did is we got into um, data, emailing, and then we ran into problems within three months of, of launching. Uh, we actually got blacklisted on every server. So Gmail, Hotmail, Yahoo, they blacklisted it, which means that you can't use your servers. It's like driving a lemon. It's always going to be, um, it, it's always going to be a problem. So we had to find something else to do with the server. And we went back and solved the problem that got us into that mess. Mm. And what happened was after we did that, we realized, wow, we have something here. Right. Let's go out and let's find, you know, ways to integrate this. So here, uh, AutoZone, it was just, it was made public that AutoZone also got blacklisted because they had people filling out slips at the home shows by hand. And then they had our sales rep going in and inputting them into a system. Well, Google doesn't like if you misspell Google or Gmail or a name, they flag it. Well, if you have too many of those, when you send out an email list, you get blacklisted over Ooh. time. Ooh. So we found out they got blacklisted. We went straight to them and said, look, we'll do this for free. We need, we need to press. Yep. Let's see if we could make lemon, lemonade out of these lemons. And oh. we did that. And uh, we knew we had a, a model and we went out and, you know, and then you had, later, and we had and letters. Then you had yeah, Go then ahead. you had AutoZone, AutoZone, then you had the AutoZone logo on your website. Boom, you're off to the race. Exactly. I mean, and, two, and looking <laughs> back then, we thought it was the end of the world. And, you know, fast forward two years later, we have thank you letters from Yahoo that says, you guys have some of the cleanest data that we've ever obtained. Wow. So thank you. Wow. Um, wow. So that, that was kind of how I got started as an entrepreneur and learned how I to see. raise money, you know, learn how to pull a team together, um, learn how to get over a lot of the problems that you see as a, as a you know, early entrepreneur, because you're going to have them. Um, you know, it depends on how you rea react. So that's kind of how I got into doing, doing it myself. And then from there, I always looked for new industries that I could kind of jump in and look for a problem that hasn't been solved yet. Um, it, because I was in California, I got to see how people reacted when they were exposed to, me to medical marijuana. And then I remember uh, being at a playground and there was a mom, a mother that had a stroller with a kid in it. She lit, she pulled out a joint and started smoking it. And there was a cop on the other side of the playground and no one cared. No one said anything to me. It was mind blowing. Um, Cause in Pennsylvania, you couldn't even say the word marijuana without. Fear. What year was this? What year was this? This was 2000, probably 2008 or 2009. Okay. All right. Um, you know, and now, now were you, had you already exited the tech company and you were looking? For no, I was, I, I saw it. I saw it when I was with the tech company. What happened was okay. then I brought the tech company back to Pittsburgh. Oh, uh, Around 2013, 2014, 
I had a, a, a future business partner call me and say, hey, listen, it's looking like medical marijuana is coming to the East Coast. And okay. there's a group of mothers that are all out fighting for legalization that each one of their kids has severe uh, epilepsy or some sort of uh, seizure disorder. Okay. I think we can help them because they're not business people. And uh, we then went and, and, and kind of broke down all the different state programs and figured out what Pennsylvania should look like. And we put a brand together and we went out and we, we tried to team up with these moms. And this kind of gets into how I got into the medical marijuana industry. So it's, it's a good story. So I'll kind of tell you. Okay. Yeah. I'll get through it. But um, what happened was is uh, when we approached the moms, they, they didn't like business people. They, they, they weren't in it for that. They were in it to save their kids. Exactly. And they kind of looked at us like we were bad guys. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we stuck around and we, we ended up going to a, a fundraiser at one of the highest profile patients' houses. And her name was Hannah. She was 11 years old. She has about 10,000 seizures a year. And um, she had a grand mal seizure just right in the middle of the party. And I saw this poor girl seize and go headfirst into the concrete. And the sound was sickening. The, the, the sight was sickening. The way that people reacted was, I mean, it was crazy. The ambulance came, half the people left scared to death. Half the people were so desensitized mm. that they were like, hey, well, I'll get another drink. Or, you know, did you try the chicken on the buffet? Mm. And it, as a sight guy, I started thinking, wow, they see these seizures so much that they're that desensitized. This girl literally had this traumatic thing where I guarantee she has a concussion to boot. And here, wow. you know, they were, they were desensitized. So I left that party. I went about my way. I didn't really think about it too much because I had a lot of stuff going on. Here I got a call from my business partner two weeks later. He said, hey, look, they just sent Hannah back home from the hospital. They told her to start hospice. She has two weeks left. Her organs are shutting down. You have to find her this oil. And back then that was, you know, 2014. So we didn't have access to the stuff. And not only that, we didn't have access to stuff that was heavy metal free and lab tested and all the things that we would want to do before we gave it to this little girl. So here I picked up the phone and I called every single person in every legal state that I knew, California, Colorado, you know, Alaska, every one of them, I, I pulled all the stops. And here I got on the phone with another mother that was funding research uh, at a major university on the East Coast. She called the researcher, threatened to pull his research money if he didn't get me this special compound of, you know, special ratio of CBD and THC. Mm. And uh, here he overnighted it with about 11 days left on the death sentence. She was given one drop. So at the time she had a feeding tube in, she was immobile on her side for days. I mean, this was end of life. One drop the size of about a, a grain of rice. And within seven minutes, she was up swiping at the feeding tube to get it out. Within half an hour, she had so much energy and she was running around. Her parents had to, had to uh, put a helmet on her. Wow. And that was, that was August, October of 2014. Um, they never looked back. Um, we ended up together forming the Pennsylvania Medical Cannabis Society as a nonprofit to go out and now educate because we saw that as the major problem next. I see. Started, they need to start buying into this. When you see someone saved by this stuff, there's no looking back. So that mm-hmm. day is where I got out of tech. Like literally that minute when I realized you could save people um, and there's something to that. So I, I sold the rest of the company to my brother and I used that to then jump into the marijuana industry. And um, from there, I ended up winning three dispensary licenses in Pennsylvania, um, moving on to West Virginia, a full vertical, a grow, uh, process in a dispense. And then from there, because I was in the medical cannabis industry, uh, that had the society and I was speaking and I probably spoke at 50 different events all over the world, you pick up all kinds of things. You, you hear what the researchers are looking for where there's, you know, it's, it's, it's falling short. The, the doctors, um, parents, caretakers, scientists, you know, data analysts, you know, yeah. there really wasn't information that these, that these people are used to looking to, to make a, a, you know, informed decision on what they should, 
what they should do regarding this plant. So I figured let's go out and create it. And, and, and you know, when you sit at a, at a spectroscopy convention, as the guy that's supposed to speak when you're not a science guy, um, and you, you hear these questions, you say, okay, well, let me find out about that. Well, I built a network of, of some of the smartest people in cannabis and, and slowly it evolved into, hey, we, sh- we could do a biotech company where we I separate see. the molecules, we integrate the, we integrate the data, you know, we monitor this stuff, we'll tie in with universities. All the stuff that I was kind of piecemealing together through the society and just in my, you know, my, in my days just being around it. And, um, you know, once I had problems that I could solve, it was real easy to jump into the next level. And that's kind of always been the thing. Look for the problem, find a solution and jump in. And so there was no, there was no master plan to build a biotech company in the beginning. That just kind of formulated over time. I see. It started over time. And actually it, what happened was, is it was once I was fully entrenched in marijuana and saw those needs, it became data. I was looking for mm. the data, right? Mm. He who holds the data at the end wins. Do you uh, still uh, do you still have the dispensary and the grows and all that, or did you sell yep, all that off? Yeah, I, I don't I don't manage any of it. I'm not I don't do the day to day operations. Um, here I'm at the we're, we're here at the biotech now. We got a studio okay. set up. We got the lab. We do all that. But um, yeah, that's full time now. Is that are you is, are those all separate entities? Same companies? How do they you are your, how do you, all separate entities. Into, into, okay, I didn't know. Yep, if you rolled all up separate one. entities. I got gotcha. you. Okay. Very good. But you're having somebody else run the day to day. Same thing for uh, for Hemp Synergistics, right? You have a CEO running it and you're 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 not running the day to day or are you? No, that's I mean, basically what it is, is if you look at an org or chart, you have the CEO and everyone down. I'm over here as the visionary and him and I <laughs> put heads together every single day. Here's what we're going to do, because um, we have a really good like we have complementary styles. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things I learned is I don't know what I don't know. Right. I'm a young, you know, I was a young guy. I'm still a young guy, but you know, that's what the first 20 years of learning, I learned, okay, you don't know what you don't know. So bring in people that are smarter than you bring in people that have done it before so that it's just your question away, as opposed to trying to figure it out, which back when I was young, I liked to figure it out to try to prove something. Now it says, Hey, you know, we call Dan the Oracle, our CEO, because he knows everything. If you just, you have to pose the the question properly and the answer is in there. Um, (laughs) By the way, I, I picked up on the I picked up on the fact that you're all about making sure you surround yourself with the right talent early on. Because when I was stalking you, preparing for the podcast, and looking at all your stuff, I saw some of the people that you had recruited to run some of your things, and I'm like, okay, yeah, he's he's serious about making sure that he gets the right talent to run That's the day to day. Yeah, I learned. Up on that. I learned from the first few because you know we did it with a Rat Pack team each time before. Right? <laughs> um, now I know you know bringing people that have been there, done that, and and. You know, the problems aren't problems as long as they, as long as they were before. Right. So with the rap pack, you come up with a problem. It's like, wow, we got to kind of roll up our sleeves and figure this out. Now it's your question away typically. So it's nice. Will, will you give uh, the listeners kind of the three to five minute elevator pitch on hemp synergistics yeah. as it stands today? Go for it. Yeah. So if you look at just the hemp industry in general, cannabis industry, they're, they're, they're kind of the same. Cause we're talking about molecules at that point. Um, there's always been a problem with delivery forms. There's been a problem with how the ingredient works with different things like food and capsules. It's not like your typical vitamin B powder where you just pour it in and you know you only need this much and you can compound it with other things. It's an oil that's viscous. Um, it's not standardized. It has chemicals in it through the pro, you know for the through the extraction process. It has um, smells. It's bitter. Like it, it's. It's not ideal for a lot of industries. So what hemp synergistics is focused on is, is looking at major problems in the big industries just that are sitting on the sidelines or just step putting a toe in right now. Okay. So you have food and beverage, which is the big monster. You have nutraceutical. You also have law enforcement, which has all kinds of problems that are now coming to fruition because you have hemp that's been federally 
legalized. So people are driving around with what looks like marijuana, smells like mm -hmm. marijuana, tastes like marijuana, but it's mm -hmm. completely legal under the new farm bill. Um, police officers are trained that you're lying. They're trained to think you're lying. So right. when you say, well, this is CBD, they say, yeah, right. The lab test will figure it out. To get to that point, there's eight months in queue at a state crime lab. And then there's $800 before someone can tell you that it's legal. Wow. Um, so if you look at the like three major problems we look to solve, law enforcement has that as a problem. So what we did was we patented with uh, Purdue University Northwest a field unit that for $14 on the hood of a car, uh, a police officer could take the hemp, grind it up, put it in a little shaker with some chemicals, and within 90 seconds, via a color match test, tell you exactly how much THC is in there. Not even just wow. pass fail. It literally says here's much is, is in it. Holy, okay, let's just take a pause right there. Take a deep breath. Patented uh, device that you could sell to every precinct every, across the yep. country. Yep. Holy, how many, how many, uh, like, is that, is it just in, in Pennsylvania? Do you have that? No, so it's cool. Network? So we, we, we just launched it. We, we, we launched in January. Um, to give you an idea, within about 45 days, we were on the docket to propose to the, uh, to, to present to this state Senate of the state of Indiana. Um, we had to go sit and answer questions and do all this, like basically, um, you know, show the research or the, the testing we've done, show how it works because they want to um, implement it into the state program as legislation that if somebody gets pulled over, it has to run through this test before there's all kinds of pressure and, 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 and weight put on the state crime lab system. Oh man. Let's just, and Oh my, okay. So and the state crime labs are fighting it because they, they don't, they want the business. Right. I see. I was just about to ask you who gets hurt in this deal. Yeah. Is there, is there revenue who, who loses, right? Yeah. The state crime labs. Mm, okay. But if it is passed, if legislation is passed and you got the patent on it, I mean, home run, my friend. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And we're, and we're, it's, 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 it's really interesting when you do stuff with IP, because if you can go out there and prove concept with it, and you have lockdown. I mean, I hate to say lockdown. Nothing's ever locked down. But you know, IP that's enforceable. Yeah. Uh, you're in a good position if it's if it's a huge problem. Like you said, every law, every you know, police officer in the country should have this, and maybe someday will. Yes. Um, so right now, we have a couple big companies that are looking at coming in and, and taking that IP because they already have distribution within those pro within those systems. I see. Okay, that's so, a win too. That's a win too. Okay. Oh, that'll be a huge win. Yeah, okay, now, be. now, but as far as the rest of your business, are you, are you, tell us about the, the powder. Yeah, yeah, sorry. So, I, yeah, I usually, I usually start with those and then go into Yeah, sorry, yeah, portion. I didn't mean to get to It's okay, my fault. So, um, so imagine that you wanted to put hemp or, or, or uh, marijuana into food. And, and, you know, you may have eaten a marijuana brownie. It tastes like marijuana. It smells like it. People kind of mm -hmm. want that because they're going for the high. They want to make sure that what they paid for is in there. And it's always been the you know, the marijuana enthusiasts that have no problem with that. But if Oreo cookie, which they have been talking about, it wants to put CBD into an Oreo cookie, they want the Oreo cookie to taste like the age old recipe that they build a brand around. Okay. Um, they don't want it to taste, they don't want it to smell, they don't want to have to change the recipe. They don't want to change anything. So what we did was we took the, the distillate, which, you know, you see what it looks like in a vape pen. It's that very viscous oil, it's like glue, uh, which you can't mix, you can't dose. When you do put that into, food it smells bad it's bitter when you taste it it has like this just bitter bad and it, and it kind of ruins your taste buds for a little bit okay um what we did is we took a helix structure polysaccharide and we impregnated it with the cbd molecule with whatever cannabinoids we want we took away the smell 
took away the taste, um, and we made it so you could literally pour it like flour. Now it's in a form that food manufacturers are used to using. All they do is they, they do the recipe as usual, pour it in, mix it, and now, boom, you have an even 25 milligrams of CBD per dose. They can't taste it. They can't smell it and your recipe is intact is this a patented protected process yes. product absolutely otherwise i wouldn't be saying it yet <laughs> <laughs> we well, actually just yeah we just we just filed it we, we had the provision all year we just filed the final patent so we're i mean sa same same thing i mean what so so nabisco or well, i don't know frito-lay yeah. whoever yeah. i mean all these companies now they're calling you to get that get that material right Correct. And, and that's who we're dealing with with the tier, tier one food manufacturers. Um, the big are you guns. Gonna, yeah. Are you going to supply? Gonna, are you are you going to be a, a manufacturer and supplier or are you or are you going to sell and license the process and let them do it in their factories? What are you going to do so in the CBD and within the CBD under uh, within the CBD industry under the farm bill program? We can sell it to anybody as is. So we'll be the manufacturer for anything that's not THC related. Okay. Um, what we are doing right now, we're in the process of finding partners within each of the state programs so that, for instance, in California, where you have all these different chocolate manufacturers, the rules are a lot looser, you know, a lot looser. We could go to one manufacturer, license the, the technology, have them do it. And now we have a manufacturing plant within that state that could make this powderized, you know, 55% uh, solution that's, that's, you know, two and a half times stronger than everybody else doesn't taste, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's how that'll work. Ultimately, what's going to happen is, is one of these tier ones are going to come in and buy that IP so that none of the competitors could have it. That's, mm. that's what our plan is. So I see. So Coca-Cola Coca or anybody else like, okay, like for example, uh, these drinks that I see on the shelf right now with CBD in them, that's for like, where are those bottlers or manufacturers where are they buying that and is how's that different from what you would sell a food and beverage that's actually a great question i'm glad we got there what this is one another reason why we built it they would have to use nano so with cbd i could be any drink manufacturer i could just take water and pour cbd into it mix it up you know make sure i have a compliant label and you know i'm good the problem okay. is is that the, the the powderized technology that's been what the industry has seen to date is called nanotechnology okay we don't know how safe it is uh people are making all kinds of claims from a from a, a, a people that run a biotech facility we can tell you that for every cbd molecule you're getting five to eight uh chemicals attached to that molecule so that's mm -hmm. how nano is working you basically beat the hell out of the the cbd uh i should say the distillate to the point with a sonicator, it's so it, it moves so fast it'll leave vaporize ice within a couple seconds. It'll make okay. your teeth hurt if you're standing near it. That's how fast it vibrates. So it shakes, shakes it to death, breaks the molecules up real small, and then it they bond around the outside of the, I should say all the chemicals bond around the outside. So now that becomes water soluble. It's not safe. We don't mm -hmm. know what the research is going to end up showing, you know, when mm -hmm. people actually do research it. Some, a lot of other countries have made it where you have to list that there's nanotechnology on the product because mm -hmm. they don't know what's going to happen yet. And we think the big problem is a nanoparticle is like 50 nanometers, which is really small. It's seeping into plastic. It's getting through the blood brain barrier. It's bringing chemicals in with it. So it nano is a problem and that's what people have been using on top of that. It tastes like crap. I have a video online that I did where I take a sip of it. And I literally spit it out on video because it's that bad. <laughs> a little bit, you know, dramatic. And that was the plan. Is your goal with Hemp Synergistics then, is it like, hey, we're going to create this IP. We're going to create this 
product. We're going to sell that off. But Hemp Synergistics, the biotech company, the consulting firm continues to develop and create new things. And then maybe we sell that too. Is that the plan? Correct. Correct. Okay. What okay. we'll do is we'll act as a manufacturer for these until we can't. Right. Okay. And then we have it, we go out to certain contract manufacturers for things. And then if someone wants to come in and buy that technology, you know, for the right price, we'll do it. Um, okay. Our timing's good because the industry's just starting to grow up. You know, you have a lot of people that are what I call first waivers that jumped in early. You know, you might have a guy that knew a little bit about science and knew how to buy, a, you know, and knew enough to buy an extractor, could operate a commercial grade washing machine. And that's as difficult as these, as these you know, first wave extraction systems. That, that's as difficult as they were to operate. Now we're getting into a whole different level of of science, you know, molecules being separated, different technology being added to it. So we're what we call the second wave of the industry. And that's, that's where it's headed. Do you think long-term that farms across the country will be, you know, it's a massive giant crop as big as maybe not as big as corn, but a huge crop across, across the country. And then food and beverage companies will take over all of the manufacturing of any type of powder. And th is that where it's headed? Well, the big problem with food, like the big, like let's say Coca-Cola wants to get in it. Their big problem is they need to control the supply like, like you're leading on to. And they have to make sure they're getting enough to be able to start putting money into advertising and packaging and all this stuff to put it out worldwide. I think what's going to happen is you're going to see farmers that do it because it's good for their farm in general. They're not going to make as much as they've been making. Um, and, and, you know, much like you see with tomatoes or sugar, you know, you're going to have these large, um, you know, companies contract out and have these farmers locked in. Um, yep. You know, what we're doing is we're doing the same thing with the farmers, bringing it through our system, changing it into powder and then selling it to these guys. Um, you know, we always said if Coca-Cola was going to get into this, they're going to put a manufacturing facility right in Atlanta. They're going to yep. source it from as close as they can because it keeps the cost down yep. make sure they can get enough of it. And that's going to be that processing center, whether they're going to have someone like us come in and set that up because we have the expertise in it. Um, and we just make sure that they're getting as much as they need and it's meeting spec or they do it themselves. We'll see. But I think that's where they, they buy a company, right? We're not going to learn this from scratch. You guys do it. You do it right. Now we want you to do it for us. Is that your goal to sell the whole thing eventually, or are you just having fun building it right now? Well, I'll tell you, I, with, if you look at my past, I usually stay in stuff for about three or four years before I find the next thing to do. Um, <laughs> Our goal is to to build it and exit to somebody big and then do okay. something else where we will okay. probably be headed next is uh, psilocybin mushrooms. OK, are you going to move to Colorado and open and, and do that? Because that's where, that's where the foundation <laughs> is, right? <laughs> well, you know, if you look at how cannabis was legalized in 1996 in California, then it went, you know, Alaska, Colorado, Oregon started moving. You know, now PA has it psychedelics are right there you know they just got decriminalized in places in california places in colorado that's coming so now that johns hopkins is getting research you have kevin o'leary that's getting into it it's it's happening and it's gonna and, and, and not only that the proof is in the pudding i mean this is wiping out depression it's it's wiping out ptsd in like one dose people are quitting smoking after three doses i mean yep. i think it's like an 80 80 percent recovery rate on, you know, or quit rate on, on just three doses of mushrooms related to cigarettes. So you, I know that that's coming next and I can't, is. I can't lie. That's where I'm looking. That's where I'm headed. Do you happen to know Del Jolly or Heather Jackson, Heather Jackson at all? Any, I, either one of those personally, no, no, no. Okay. 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 Uh, well, they're, they're, they're heading up some stuff in Colorado uh, on psychedelics. So I was wondering, okay, so that's where you're headed next. 
Now, but you're still majority owner in the other entities or he- or a, a large, you know, unit holder. I don't know how that works. But- yeah. So it's um, um, at a certain point, you know, you as a founder, you know, you have all this, right? When you want to sell and start moving your way out, you sell, right? In certain parts of it. Um, okay. The the tech company I sold off to my brother, the marijuana companies, I still have I still have pieces of. Okay. Um, but like I said, I don't have to do any of the day to day and check in with them a little bit here and there. If we do go into another state, I'll jump back in, and, and you know that's where I'm strong. How do you, how do you find time? Are you married, family, kids, socialized? <laughs> well, so the time thing was an issue. I got married and I got divorced in six months because <laughs> she was telling me she she verbatim said to me, and I remember the day. She said, uh, if this is what it means to be an entrepreneur, I'd rather you go do something else. And you're like, and well, sorry. They're like looking at her where I'm like glossing over. I'm thinking, how the <laughs> hell am I going to get out of this one? And that was it. Six months later, divorce. <laughs> how do you find the time to do everything that you're involved in and write a book, which I want you to go into next? Yeah. But first, let's, let's talk about the time question. How do you first thing how is do you turn the off the TV? That's people watch TV. They don't realize they get caught up in TV for four hours at night. I cut TV out in 2014. Mm -hmm. That is a big, big thing. Right. Um, Yep. On top of that. I mean, you know, you got to want it. You got to pick a goal and you just say, I got to do it. You know, a lot of my life before I got to this point was a lot of half finished projects. Cause it was like, I want to learn how to do stuff. I want to figure it out. And it's like, eh, you know, maybe I didn't think about how much time this is going to take up now. When I want to do something, I realize it's going to take this much time. You got to put your head down. You got to do it. And if you're going to do it, commit to it and get it done. And, uh, you know, when you do that and you visualize and have a vision board and stuff, you know, you, you do get stuff done. But cutting out TV, cutting off all the crap, I cut out anything fiction. Like people say, do you read? I say, yeah, like if it, unless it's fiction. Like, I, you know, I don't have time for fiction in my life. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, so I think that's the major thing is time. Uh, changing your sleep schedule. I've done polyphasic sleep, which is where you sleep for 20 minutes every four hours around the clock. I did that for a year and a half. Really? I mean, that means did, you're, did up for, you're up for 22. It was the greatest thing I've ever done in my life. Really? But the problem is, is the rest of the world doesn't operate like that. So mm-hmm. where, I, where I'm up at three o'clock in the morning doing yoga and writing a book and, you know, taking in more information, the rest of the world sleeping. Then what <laughs> happens is they get up and you got to take these intermittent naps. And it's weird. You know, they, people think it's weird. But uh, I'll tell you, there's a whole nother level of consciousness that you hit when you when you are up for 22 hours and the rest of the world is asleep. <laughs> but what's neat about it is you could literally close when you're at, at the end of your four hour cycle. I mean, you literally feel your eyes going into REM. You close your eyes and about eight to 12 minutes later, you feel like you had eight hours of sleep. I mean, it's the that? most amazing thing in the world. But, you know, that's it. It comes down to time. You got to figure out how to make more of it right tell, I think- tell me uh tell me about the book uh, why, why did you decide to write the book and then what is the book about go for it so i told you that story about how my dad i, I wrote that training program for the company and i didn't want that to go to waste right so it took all this stuff i did all this reach i had it so that was always sitting in the back of my mind someday you're going to turn that into a book i see what happened was i i, I started writing the book um got done with it and then after I was done, I'm, I'm a Virgo, I, like we're perfectionists, right? Like we, we internalize and I started thinking, you know what, I can't put this, I just, it just makes me like, it sounds like I'm just trying to be smart. I said, I need to make this so that people can apply it and follow a system, right? Cause I, ultimately I'm a systems builder at heart. That's what I like to do. Mm-hmm. So I went back and I said, okay, well, what are you doing here? And I literally built a framework that's five steps. And then within each of those five steps, you have certain things you need to pay attention to. But if you follow that, 
I am certain that whatever your goal is in the beginning, whether that's to raise money, it's to sell a deal, to get your dog to sit, like whatever it is, you have a goal, then you, you do the framework. You're going to get chance, chances of you getting what you want is 90%. And mm. um, I'll tell you, I've, I've spoken all over the country now. I've, I've, I have, you know, my um, disciples, I should say, that, that follow it to a T that, you know, call me every other day. Oh, my God, I used molecular influence on this. I used molecular influence on that. And, you know, it makes me smile because I know exactly what they're thinking. I know exactly how they did it. And, and, and I know exactly what's happening to the person across from them. And it, it's a pretty awesome weapon. Molecular influence, by the way, and for the listeners, uh, can they go to molecularinfluence.com or Amazon? How, how do you? How yeah, do, if you go to molecularinfluence.com, um, there's a link to buy the book, and it takes you right over to Amazon. It takes you right over to Amazon, and it's out for sale right now. Launched right now for roll. sale. Formal launch is until August because uh, I have a formal launch party and all that. But we have okay. it up, and it's ready, and you can buy it and and uh, yeah, and read it. You've got the Kindle okay. version up there too. Okay, very good. Thank you. But this all, what it comes down to is, you know, what I learned from Billy Mays, my father and my, and my grandfather, is truly how to, to, to pick that goal, like I said, and set up the room so that at the end of the day, they see what you want them to see. And it's pretty by awesome way, to read your stories. By the way, was your grandfather, was he, when you say magician, like for a living or for a hobby? No, he was, he, he was an insurance agent okay. by day, magician by night. So he made money as a magician. But it okay. wasn't it, it it wasn't um it wasn't his full time thing. He was he a pretty heavy influence on your life, your granddad? Probably the biggest influence on my life, I would say. You know, it's funny because really? I looked at the contrast between him and my father. My father would say, I don't know why you're out doing all that magic stuff, you don't make all kinds of money on it. And then I would hear Pap say, But this is what I like to do. I like to make people laugh. And I gravitated towards that. And I he used to bring me to funerals. That was I was the oldest grandson, so I kind of pout around with him and he would do card tricks at funerals. And I said, Pap, you know, like people are here to be sad. And he said, no, I'm here to make people laugh. And you'll see that when I die, people are going to come to my funeral because I came to theirs. And I, I was a smart ass kid. And I said, wow, all your friends are dying. Like no one will be left. Haha. <laughs> and here to, to be able to see then 20 years later, he died and he had 96 cars in his funeral procession. The wow, funeral home wow. said they've never seen that before. I mean, we're Italians, so like you, you know, you see a lot of people, funeral, but never '96, and that really hit me. And I said, you know what? At the end of the day, that was that one piece of information that he gave me that I'm going to take to the bank because I saw it. You know, I mean, the dad is there, so are yeah, you close to your, towards Pap? Are you close to your dad now, though? Are you and your dad Super repaired? Close. Super okay. close now. Oh, okay. Once okay. I proved myself, there was a, a changing of things. You know, was, uh, <laughs> he's, he's still alive. He's still alive. Yeah. And he stays on top of me every single day. He's I was going to say, I was going to say, does he call you or do you call him and you're like, Hey, listen, I got, I got this new situation that I haven't faced yet. Have you yeah. Ever yeah. And usually he turn, you know, he'll turn around and give me the same advice he already has. Like, you know, get tough, toughen up, figure it out. <laughs> you can do it. You know, things like that. Um, he's got, you know, my father was a welder by trade before he got into what he got into. I um, see. I and, see. and, and so, you know, his advice is very, you know, work ethic related. He goes back to that a lot. And, you know, that's where I kind of get this. If I'm up, I better be working because, you know, dad's going to yell at me. And that's been <laughs> so since true. I was 15. That's how I thought. And, so you know, true. that's how I live. So. What year was he born? My dad, 54. He was born in 54. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, the, the older guys, they're just, they just cut from a different cloth, man. You're, you're absolutely, I, I have the exact same feeling at the age of 54, even today. And my dad's 84 years old. I still 
kind of have him like if 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 I'm not yeah. busting my if I'm not busting my ass like if I don't work at least twelve hours in the day like I like he might call me or something like I feel right. like you know he's like right there watching like dad's watching yeah yeah it's nice kind of right <laughs> like it keeps you going it does no I totally agree um, let me ask you a, a couple of questions here as we it was as we head towards wrap up around being an entrepreneur so a lot of our listeners are either aspiring entrepreneurs or early in startup life. Um, but let's talk to the, let's talk to the ones that want to start something. They want to quit their job. They want to start a business, but they're scared. Um, they're nervous or maybe they don't have the money. Um, what would you say to anybody listening right now that wants to start something, but hasn't number one, pick a goal, right? Um, stay focused on the goal when things come up, they get in the way of that or that, uh, you know, you have to react to be ready to react, but always keep an eye on that goal. And, you know, I like to look back like American gladiators. You're, you know, you're old enough to remember that when yep. they would have that obstacle course where the gladiators were shooting at everyone and you had to run from thing to thing, you know, their goal is to get there. They're being shot at the, you know, there's all this stuff happening, but if you stay focused and you're always looking at where you're headed, like, yeah, you got stuff coming out. You got to dodge and bob and weave. But, um, you know, know that's going to happen and know that you might have to change your model for, for it to happen. And you're going to have competitors that come up and scare the crap out of you that, that may have something close. Competition is good. Like, so there's a lot of things that, that as long as you have that goal in your head and you're always going towards it, um, you know, I think that's super important. And just be ready for the problems that are going to happen so that when they do happen, you can react, you could make a decision and you're not thinking it's the end of the world. Um, are you a fan of bootstrapping and, and putting in cash yourself at first or raising cash early? What are your thoughts on what yeah, are, that's what are half your opinions my problem. on that? Yeah, that's my problem is I'm a startup junkie, right? And and I want to do it myself. And that was always, and that came from my father. You know, you never, you know, why would you want to work for someone? You got to do it yourself. You got to own it all. And there's a certain strategy to get in there. And, um, you know, I like being in control of things as long as I can. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm big on bootstrapping. I mean, you can do it. You can start small. You're in control of everything. And as long as you keep that lean mentality, you know, you can do a lot of things with a little bit of money. So bootstrap, if you can stay in control for as long as you can and then raise cash when you need to and then start selling off pieces as you move bootstrap, along. Bootstrap, yeah, bootstrap until you proved concept, right? And you have one client that you could look at. Then you've proved authority. You've proved that this is actually going to work. You have all kinds of clout in a negotiation at that point. A lot of people try to go to things with an idea. You know, that's when investors are going to turn around and spank you. Um, they're going to ask you questions that you can't answer. You know, it's, 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 it's a more difficult, a difficult road. If you don't prove concept first. Do you, do you like raising cash or you hate that part of it? Or you I mean, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm proud of myself that I can do it because not everybody can do it from an idea really. Um, but it's a pain in the ass, you know what I mean? It's really <laughs> a pain in the ass. <laughs> and then you got people that, you know, have an opinion, you know, all the time and stuff, but you know, you get smarter with that too, as you, as you do it more times, you know, mm. but now that I'm in, now that I, this is my fourth, third or fourth, fourth time raising money. I know exactly what investors I want. I know exactly where to find them. I know exactly what increments to do it in. I know, I know how this, this series are going to go so that I'm in control, you know, longer than, you know, than I was the last time or whatever it is, you know, you learn as you go. And, um, you know, you got to pay attention to that stuff too, because a lot of guys, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, they don't own their company and they, they don't have a say anymore. I had a good friend of mine who owns a cannabis or owned a cannabis company here in Denver. And uh, one of the things he used to tell me is like, Steve, my cap table has 95 people on it. 
And if there's one thing I'd do differently is I'd never, I'd never let it happen again because yep. it's just, it just it consumes all of my time. Yeah. You know, and in the marijuana industry specifically, you got a lot of unsavvy investors. I'll call them, mm-hmm. you know, their accountants said no, their attorneys said no. And they just said, well, I'm doing it. So you see a lot of people that haven't done this before. They don't know what questions to ask. And then once the, you know, the money's exchanged and documents are signed, they want in on, in, you know, board meetings and all these things that they just thought they would, would get access to. And, you know, so you got to watch that kind of stuff. And that, that happens in the marijuana industry because the guys that say, you know, I don't care to my accountant and my lawyer are usually the guys that, you know, that's, I don't want to say, but a lot of the guys that don't know what they're talking about. So you see that in that marijuana industry specifically. Are your parents okay with cannabis now? Your mom and dad? Yeah. I remember the day my mom, my mom showed up my house and said, knocked on the door at a weird time. I did not expect her to be here because I lived 45 minutes away. I opened the door. I said, mom. And she said, are there any kids in this house? I said, no, why? She said, you're in the marijuana industry. <laughs> it was cool because, you know, they were anti big time. And um, I had about a two hour conversation with her and I told her about Hannah and I told her about where, where we had it with it and started the medical cannabis side. Like I did a lot of work before I even told her about it. Really? And funny because that night she went home my father was watching tv him and i were not getting along at this point in my life okay and uh she went in and she said he said i'm sorry he's staring at the tv didn't even make eye contact with her he says do you know what your son is getting into (laughs) he said yeah i just talked to him about it and she said i want to know how i have access to my half of the money because i want to invest oh that was was the moment where a lot changed in my life with my parents because she bought into it and he started Uh. thinking what the heck and then uh, about a year later, he came around and now he's the biggest advocate for it. So how about that? How about now? Let me go further. Can you go to mom and dad's for Thanksgiving and uh, have some edibles and maybe light a joint in the backyard? Or I or mean, not? it is put it this way. We are living in California, at my parents' house these days. <laughs> <laughs> it's there's it's no a, stigma at all anymore. Um, right. You know, I, for instance, I used to smoke cigarettes like coming out of college and I smoked for a while. Once I integrated marijuana in my life, I quit it. You know, we yeah. saw what happened with Hannah. I had a very bad frontal lobe injury for about five years. Cannabis was the only thing that helped. Um, doctors told me I had ADHD, severe ADHD. Cannabis fixed it. My mother's in pain. She has glaucoma. She has a lot of eye problems. A couple drops of THC takes away that pressure. can get her through that? the day. My That's father nice. has all kinds of surgeries and stuff he's dealing with. He says no more Percocet, none of that stuff. I'll, I'll be fine with CBD or THC. And so, you know, it's, it's really my little, my other brothers and sisters that haven't come around, haven't come around yet. Mostly. Oh, really? They, yeah. They have kids and they still have that stigma in their head, but um, okay. yeah, everybody's come around. Pretty, now what you, what your dad never told you is, so let's see if your dad was born in 54. So 69 and 69, he was like 16, if I'm doing the math right or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so what he never told you was in 69 and 70, he was probably doing all kinds of cannabis. <laughs> you know, what's funny is my dad, believe it or not, was so straight edge that he actually turned in people that had marijuana. <laughs> That's how bad he was. And him and his brother had a, had a, had a pack their whole life. If, if, if either one of us sees each other smoking dope, we're going to beat their ass. So he was real anti. <laughs> So. My, uh, I grew up in Oklahoma. Same thing. My dad, we lived out on a farm and uh, they used to, the, the, the potheads used to uh, grow it down on the creek line, down on the creek line. I guess it was the, the, Good way for the, water, yeah. the soil or whatever. And my dad would run down there, drive down there with a the shotgun and run off the dopers. He'd call them. He'd, <laughs> he'd come back up to the house feeling super proud because he ran off the, the hippies. You know, I'm like, okay, dad. That's funny. Uh, two, two final questions. If you could call the young man in West Virginia 
on graduation day. Uh, I'm guessing you were 21 or whatever. Yeah. Uh, um, if you could go back in time and call him, what would you tell him now? I would say the most important thing that I learned that I know now that I didn't understand then is learn how to visualize. I mean, that has, that has literally changed the way I think and the way I go at things and the way I achieve things. Because again, when you can see it, you can create it. And if you can believe that you can create it, you, you can do it. Then it comes down to time, energy, and are you going to, you know, put all that towards it to get it done. But you can truly achieve anything. And it's not just, you know, here and that, like you can, say, oh, you can achieve anything. Yeah, it goes in one ear and out the other. How you do it, you visualize, you stay on track. Um, so I think that's probably the most important thing I would tell myself is okay. that, and also you don't know everything, Russ. <laughs> you think you do. <laughs> you don't. How about this last question? If you could put your core purpose in life into a sentence, if you could frame that into a sentence, what would that sound like? Well, that's a tough one. My core purpose in one sentence. Yeah, why is Russ walking around on this blue ball in black space? I mean, honestly, I would say uh, to influence certain things, right? So I'm the kind, and if you look at like marijuana industry as an example, it was, it was time, Pennsylvania needed to hear about it. Someone had to jump up and do that. Because of my background in psychology and magic and Billy Mays and all that stuff, I know how to kind of, have that conversation with anybody even when i'm hit with radical opposition and i thrive in that environment because i'm seeing what the brain is across from me is thinking at that you know at that moment and i'm able to like i talk about in the book you know the brain works like pythagorean theorem a squared plus b squared equals c squared well if we present the the, the brain a and b it's going to compute c automatically so you have the ability to 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 I hate to use words, word manipulate, but you know, you can kind of take, if you know they know A or they're sticking on A, you can integrate B at a certain point and they're gonna have that C in their head. And uh, I think, you know, knowing how to do that and being able to do that um, is, is a superpower really. And I think that that plays with a lot of things. Um, Especially when it comes to raising cash. Raising cash, <laughs> you know, closing deals, um, you know, just, you know, helping people out and I, and I like to, help people out and a lot of that comes down to look, look i'm not able to get x and it's like okay well let's roll up our sleeves let's let's get into how we're going to do that um by having a conversation and so i, I, I think that's that's probably my my thing i have a feeling that if we ever got into a, a fight with china and we were about to go to war we could just send russ over there and he'd just make it all better <laughs> you know what's funny is I, i've gone through that in my head and i think so what if i'm sitting across the table from a world leader like i gotta be likable he's gotta he's gotta see that you know we're on the same page you know, always smile. Like, how are these guys not doing it? And now I know it's just all for to support the war machine. So it's there's it's tough to get around. But um, <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on that. Uh, Hempcenergistics.com, hemp also the book MolecularInfluence.com. Russ, thank you so much for being on the Riderflex podcast. Oh, it was good really being here. Appreciate Steve. it. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. You need to come back to the show and do it again soon, my friend. I could talk to you for another two hours. Keep me posted. Next time we'll dive into my hiring strategy based around Zodiac sign.